Good morning. You can turn with me in God's Word to Romans chapter 8. Most of us now have these verses memorized, but I'm going to read them again as we commence our study of God's Word this day. And so I invite you to follow along in Romans chapter 8 as I read in the 28th verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We have been working backwards through these verses. We began some weeks ago with glorification right at the end. We then proceeded to justification. And then last week to vocation or special calling, God's special calling. And so today we arrive at the subject of predestination. Uh, Just saying the word elicits a response. Just hearing the word elicits a response. Predestination provokes all sorts of reactions from horror to jubilation, from anger to thanksgiving, from cynicism to wonder, and all points in between. Predestination. Where I want to begin is with three introductory remarks that I pray will set us on the same course, the same pathway. Uh, Three remarks designed, very intentional in what I'm going to say, to make sure we're all getting off on the right foot, so to speak. Uh, Here they are, introductory remark number one. We cannot avoid the doctrine of predestination. We cannot avoid the doctrine of predestination. I have met folks who have informed me, I don't believe in predestination. It's in the Bible. What do you mean you don't believe in predestination? You might not believe about predestination, what I believe about predestination. But to say, I don't believe in predestination, you just can't do that, my friend. It's in the Bible. Uh, The word is used repeatedly, and the concept is found from start to finish. I've also met people who have informed me, I don't care about predestination. We have to care about predestination. It's part of the gospel. I stated it a couple of Sundays ago on the basis of 1 Peter, where Peter acknowledges that uh, the gospel, there are things in the gospel into which even the angels long to look. Well, if we dare call ourselves Christians, and if we dare champion the gospel and proclaim to love the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we'll want to know the intricacies of that gospel. 
We'll want to understand the gospel, not merely in its simplicity, but in its profundity. And so to say, I don't care about predestination, well, that's rather short-sighted. It's in the Bible. It's part and parcel of the gospel. It's part and parcel of our revelation of God. Therefore, I should want to know something at least about predestination. So that's introductory remark number one. We cannot avoid it. Introductory remark number two. We should be excited about it. And I hope my excitement is contagious today. We should be excited about it. Why? A host of reasons. Let me just state a couple. The first reason is this. As Christians, our two greatest struggles are these. With the question of security and the issue of adversity. Those two are at the root of most of our problems as Christians. Security. Knowing who we are in the Lord Jesus and our security in him. Adversity. The problems we face and trying to make sense of them. And so you take security over here, the question of security and the issue of adversity, and you will find, I mean, these, these don't account for all of our problems and struggles, but they account for a great number, a great deal of the issues that plague us in the Christian life. Here's what I want you to get. The doctrine of predestination resolves both. You can't resolve them apart from the doctrine of predestination. There is no security. There's no such thing as security outside of the doctrine of predestination. And there is no answer to the adversity and the problems and the struggles we encounter in life as believers outside of the doctrine of predestination. Let me add to that why we should be excited about it. It exalts God. It inspires awe. It breeds humility. It enlarges faith. It strengthens hope. And it cultivates patience. That's the second introductory remark. We should be excited about the doctrine of predestination. Now here's the third. We need to be careful how we approach the doctrine of predestination. Caution. We need to be careful how we approach the doctrine of, Jesus, of, of predestination. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon he preached in, on it was in Ephesians 1, going back decades. Uh, he asked a simple question. How does the Bible approach this issue? It's a good question. How does the Bible approach the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination? And he made three observations, and I want to share these with you, as to how these should govern our approach to this subject. Here's the first. The Bible never argues about predestination. That's interesting. The Bible never, ever argues about predestination. Now, that's fascinating. It's fascinating even in the context of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Because when it comes to the doctrine of justification, he argues about it. The entire fourth chapter is an argument. When it comes to the doctrine of sanctification, he argues about it. The sixth chapter and much of the seventh chapter is an argument. He engages in a lot of controversy and a lot of arguments when it comes to other doctrines, but there is never any arguing in all of Scripture when it comes to the doctrine of predestination. The Bible simply makes assertions. The Bible simply says, this is the way it is. That's all it does. 
when it comes to the doctrine of predestination. Second observation Martin Lloyd-Jones makes is this. The Bible reproves those who want to argue about it. The Bible reproves those who want to argue about it. We just need to turn over into the next chapter in Romans. Uh, the ninth chapter. We just need to look at the 19th and 20th verses there. Look at what Paul says. You will say to me, here he's speaking of the doctrine of election. You will say to me then, why does he, that is God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? If he's completely sovereign, well, who can resist his will? What's Paul's response? He doesn't argue. What does he say? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? That's informative. Very informative. The Bible reproves those who want to argue about predestination. That gives me pause. Before we ask our questions, before we submit our arguments, before we present our objections, we must acknowledge that we are assuming, when we do so, we are assuming that our puny minds are capable of understanding the works of an infinite being. That is the assumption when we want to argue. And I think that's the chief reason why Scripture does not argue. It won't give us any leeway. Scripture wants us to acknowledge. The Spirit of God wants us to recognize that there is this infinite chasm between an infinite being and finite creatures, a limitless understanding and a very severely limited understanding. And so the Bible simply makes assertions, never engages in arguments, and reproves, is quick to reprove those who want to argue about it. And here's the third observation Martin Lloyd-Jones makes. The Bible never answers our questions about predestination. The Bible never answers our questions about predestination. It does not attempt to resolve the tensions. It proceeds. It proceeds on the premise that God is boundless, whereas our minds are small, sinful, and skewed. Those are the assumptions underlying Scripture. It never argues about the doctrine of predestination. It reproves those who want to argue about it. And it never answers our questions about it. That is how the Bible approaches this subject. We need to be careful how we approach this subject. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to follow suit. I'm going to follow Scripture's example. And all I'm going to do today is make assertions. Assertion upon assertion upon assertion. Thirteen, as a matter of fact. You will find them in the bulletin. You all received the bulletin on the way in. You open that up, you'll find the sermon title, Predestined, our text, 13 points. You have my wife, Allison, to thank for those. On Thursday, I said to Allison, wouldn't it be funny if I simply wrote the word predestination and left it blank? She didn't even crack a smile. <laughs> notes, 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 as many as you can give them because this is going to be difficult. So there you have it. You have my 13 points with just a few blanks. 
I'm going to help you fill in these blanks as we make these 13 assertions concerning the doctrine of predestination, namely what Paul has articulated there in Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We want to get our minds around what we can at least get them around, right? We want to understand at the very least what the Bible does affirm about this subject. Not simply to satisfy our curiosity, but so that in understanding we might derive the comfort this doctrine is intended to give us. That is actually Paul's point in this text. This is not a chapter on systematic theology. This is not a chapter in which he's trying to satisfy his reader's curiosity. This is not a chapter in which he's just trying to probe the intricacies of complex theology. No, he's very pastoral in this chapter. He's trying to be a pastor. And he's trying to comfort people. And he's trying to bring truth to bear upon their lives. And he sees this truth as preeminent. The doctrine of predestination. If you want to know your security in the Lord Jesus, you must come to terms with this doctrine. If you want to know how to make sense of adversity in your lives, you can't. Apart from this doctrine. So 13 assertions, yes, to bring clarity as much as I possibly can. But also to bring comfort to the troubled heart. The troubled conscience. The troubled mind. 13. I'm going to bring them all up behind me on the screen as well. And there's the first one. This is the starting point. God is unsearchable. Nothing to do with predestination. Everything to do with predestination. God is unsearchable. I could have turned to innumerable texts. There you have Isaiah chapter 44 verses 6 and 7. God speaking, I am the first. He is his own cause. I am the first and the last. He is his own end. God is his own cause. He is from himself and he is his own end. He exists for himself. Nothing outside of himself. Besides me, there is no God. Unequaled. Unequaled. Who is like me? There's a challenging question. Now of everything he could say by way of an answer, what does he appeal to? He appeals to his sovereignty. Who is like me? Let them declare what is to come. And what will happen? Declare, not merely announce what I know is going to come. No, declare, let me proclaim. Let me declare what I have determined will come. Who can do that besides me? Is what God is saying here. Who is like God? Put anyone forward. And this is going to be the determining criteria. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. No one else can do that. Why? Because besides him, there is no God. Why? Working backwards. Because he is the first and he is the last. It makes him unsearchable, completely unsearchable. All we can know about God is what is revealed in this book. Outside of this book, we can know nothing. The remainder he has chosen to, to keep hidden from us. And we must embrace this. We must celebrate this, that as we study God, 
As we grow in our knowledge of God in accordance with the Bible, the scriptures, sooner or later, eventually, we come up against mystery. Mystery. Do not let the word frighten you. I beg of you. Embrace mystery. A refusal to embrace mystery always leads to heresy. Always. The history of the church testifies to it. A refusal to embrace mystery always leads to results in heresy. There are questions concerning God we cannot answer. There are tons of things about this great God we do not know. What we do have is his revelation confined to this book. We study it. We learn of him. But ultimately, we are going to encounter mystery. At that point, the only proper worthy response is worship. God is unsearchable. Here's the second assertion. God decrees all things. Staying in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46. I am God. And there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He decrees all things. Essential for us to grasp that when we speak of God, we are speaking of one whom the old theologians described as a simple being. Simple. Simplicity. Simplicity. By simplicity, they meant this, that God is one indivisible essence. He is spirit. Or according to his great self-revelation in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses by the burning bush, I, I am. He is being, he is spirit, he is indivisible being, he is simple. Meaning what? He doesn't have parts. We have parts. We can divide ourselves into body and soul. Our body is made up of all sorts of parts. Our souls are made up of mind, conscience, memory, reason, etc., etc., etc. God isn't like that. God doesn't have parts. He is indivisible. All that we say of him is actually who he is, not an attribute that we are assigning to him. Therefore, when we speak of God's will, we are not speaking of a part of him. What are we speaking of? Him. God is his will. His will is God. Therefore, his decrees are not it's impossible to separate or divorce his decrees, his will, his eternal purpose from who he is. We cannot divorce the two. We cannot separate the two. I am. All that he wills is who he is. Who he is is all that he wills. His purpose is who he is. And his purpose extends to all things and includes all things. Therefore, we affirm he decrees all things. Or as Paul says, makes clear in Ephesians chapter 1, he works all things 
after the counsel of his will. That is the second assertion. God decrees all things. Building on it. Here's the third. Very, very important. God decrees all things in two ways. I'll get to the text in just a moment. God decrees all things in two ways. Here is where many people stumble. They hear the word decree, or they hear the word foreordained, or they hear the word predetermined, right? They hear these kinds of words. God decreed everything. God foreordained everything. God predetermined everything. And it's a stumbling block for them. Why? Because they look around at this world and they see a lot of evil. We see a lot of evil. What do you mean God decreed everything? Foreordained everything. Predetermined everything. You're telling me he predetermined, foreordained, and decreed all this evil I see? That that's actually something he determines is going to happen and makes happen? That's not what we're saying. God decrees all things, predetermines, foreordains them, but he does so in two different ways. Everything that is good He decrees it, has decreed it, and he performs it. Everything that is evil, yes, he decreed it, foreordained it, predetermined it, but predetermined to do what? Willingly permit it. There is the difference. He has decreed everything. But he does not, everything is not fulfilled, realized in the same way. All that he has decreed. Some of it, that which is good, he himself actually performs it in time. That which is evil, he willingly permits it. Why this text? Because it is the supreme example of what it is I'm trying to articulate. Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching. What does he say? Preaching to the Jews. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. And foreknowledge of God, the death of the Lord Jesus, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, evil, yes, decreed by God before the foundation of the world, yes, predetermined, his definite plan, did God himself actually perform it? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There you have it. God decrees absolutely Everything, everything. He has predetermined, foreordained everything that comes to pass. But he does so in two distinct ways. All that he has decreed that is good, he performs it. All that he has decreed that is evil, he willingly permits it. Now building, we come to the fourth assertion. Here it is. All of God's decrees come to pass. All of God's decrees come to pass. Job 23, verse 13. He, that is God, is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. God is unchangeable in his being. I am the Lord, he declared to the people of Malachi's day, I am the Lord, I do not change. 
He does not change in his being who he is. Remember, he is indivisible. He does not have parts. That means he does not change in his understanding. God is not in the midst of a learning process. He does not change in his opinions or what he thinks of things or feels about certain things. He doesn't change in his will because his will is who he is and he is what he wills. And so all that he decrees, his decrees are as immutable as unchangeable as he himself is. Now this too can cause a problem. It's a little bit of a, a brain twister. Teaser. Why? Because we pick up our Bibles. We go back, for example, to the, to the flood narrative. Get back into Genesis 6, 7, 8. And there we re read what? That God repented that he made man on the face of the earth. You get up into 1 Samuel, for example. And Saul, what a mess he makes of things. And we read that God repented that he had made Saul king. And so we read a text like that and we think to ourselves, well, I hear what you're saying. He's immutable. His decrees are immutable. But I read something like that and at face value, it seems to suggest to me that God there is changing his mind. He is changing his, his direction. He's changing how he feels about something or how he's handling something. And here, here is what we must grasp. In Scripture, God is often described in human terms. There are fancy theological terms for them. I won't bore you with them. At times, human characteristics, physical characteristics, are assigned to God. And so we read of his eyes, the eye of the Lord. We read of the hand of the Lord going forth. That does not mean he has eyes. It does not mean he has hands. Those are body parts, physical body parts that are assigned to God for our better understanding of, of an infinite being and what he is doing and his ways among men. And so we see the eye of the Lord and it reminds us of his omniscience. We hear of the hand of the Lord or the arm of the Lord and it points to what? His omnipotence, that he's all powerful, but he doesn't actually have eyes. He's spirit, pure spirit, infinite being. And at times also God is described using human emotions or human reactions. He repented. It doesn't mean that he literally repented like we repent. In 1 Samuel, as a matter of fact, just a couple of chapters after we read God repented that he made Saul king, um, Samuel makes it clear God is not like man that he should repent. He doesn't repent. He's completely different from us. So why is that language used? It's used for our better understanding that we can truly enter into and begin to empathize with something of God's response, what he thinks, what he feels about man's sin. That God is not detached from the, the consequences of man's sin toward him or rebellion toward him, but he feels. God is not emotionless, passionless, but not emotionless. He does respond, he does react to the very negative consequences of sin, which he himself foresaw, he himself predetermined, he himself decreed to permit to happen. But as they do unfold, even in time, in human history, we have these descriptions to convey to us his displeasure in his nature toward man's sin. But crucial for us to grasp 
hold on to the texts, the great theological statements, like that one out of Malachi chapter 3, God himself speaking, I am the Lord. I am the great I am. I do not change. He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Of necessity, it means that his will remains unchanged, immutable. Of necessity, meaning what? All of God's decrees come to pass. Fifth assertion. Here we go. This brings us to our text. One of God's decrees is predestination. What is predestination? Paul gives us the best definition right there in the 29th verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The original term translated in our English Bibles, predestined, it literally means, the verb literally means to determine a horizon. To determine a horizon. In other words, to determine what is coming, to determine what lies ahead. What is significant is the prefix pre, predestined. It's not merely destined, it is predestined. In other words, placing this activity of God beforehand, before what? Before time. Ephesians 1 makes it perfectly clear, before the foundation of the world. God predetermined, he decreed, decreed what? That those whom he foreknew, that what would happen to them? They would most certainly be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image of his son, summed up in two words, holiness and happiness. Holiness and happiness. We experience it now, even in this fallen world, as the Spirit of God conforms us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus. We grow in holiness, and holiness breeds happiness, and the consummation, the fulfillment will come in glory. And what will be the result? The magnification of His Son, the Lord Jesus, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, God triune has a plan to glorify Himself. You need to interpret history in that lens. God triune has a plan to magnify and glorify Himself. How? The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God becoming man, the Lord Jesus Christ redeeming his people, sinners. The Spirit of God then conforming those sinners to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, thereby magnifying the very nature and character of God in this great work of redemption. This was predestined. It was predetermined. It was foreordained. It was decreed. Before time, a decree of Almighty God, the triune God, that He would take these sinners, humankind, foreseen as fallen, sinful in their rebellion, that out of the mass of humanity, He would take to Himself a people, and He would make them like His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in holiness and happiness, so that eternity might resound with the glory and excellency and majesty of his beloved son. That is assertion number five. Here's assertion number six. Predestination. 
is rooted in God's foreknowing. That's right out of the text. Verse 29. Who did God predestine to be conformed to the image of his son? Those whom he foreknew. This is where it gets tricky. And this is where the train leaves the tracks for countless people in our days. For some reason, all is well until they reach this term. More on it next week. We're going to look at that term in its entirety next week. But let me just throw out there a few thoughts just to begin to shape our thinking so that we understand this. Those whom he foreknew. Remember, the five verbs are active. The five verbs in these verses are things God does. God foreknows. God predestines. God calls. God justifies. God glorifies. These are transitive verbs. There is an object in every case. A group of people. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so we are speaking of five actions God performs on a specific group of people, inseparable. And yet all of a sudden people hear this word and how do they define it? Well, all that means is God foresaw that someone was going to choose them. All that means is that God foresaw that someone was going to believe. And on the basis of the fact that he knew, looking down the corridors of time, that they were going to love him and believe him and receive him. Well, on that basis, he then predestined, called, justified, glorified. The whole thing falls apart. The object of God's foreknowing is not what people do. The object of God's foreknowing is people. Those whom he foreknew. Foreknew. It is a synonym. Another way you could say it is this. Those whom God foreloved. It is the language of John 10. I know my sheep. That's the Lord Jesus. Well, doesn't he know everybody? Not the way he means it there. I know my sheep. I am intimately acquainted with my sheep. It's the same thing you have in Matthew 7, the Lord Jesus again. Depart from me on the judgment day, for I never knew you. It's individuals, people who are the object of this knowing. It is a synonym for loving. Those whom God foreknew, those whom God foreloved, those whom he gave to the Son, even before the foundation of the world, these, these alone he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. These and these alone he subsequently in time called and justified. And these and these alone he will on a day yet future most certainly glorify. Predestination is rooted in God's foreknowing. The seventh assertion is this. Predestination is effected, realized, accomplished. How? This is right out of the text, verses 29 and 30. Three ways, three means. Calling, justifying, and glorifying. And so we have this group of people whom God foreknew. And God predestined them. And so he, he has this decree 
that he will conform them to the image of his son. Yes, foreseen as fallen, sinners, lost, dead in their trespasses and sins. How does he accomplish what he predetermined? How does he accomplish what he actually decreed? How does he perform it in time? He called them. We looked at that term last week, the special call. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was running from God, but God called me. He gave me eyes to see, and he gave me ears to hear. And because he infused life where there was nothing but death, how did I respond? I responded in faith. And I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Not a singular act in time, but an action that becomes characteristic and marks my entire life. An attitude of heart. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through faith, I am made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ, God now treats me as if I had done what Christ did. Meaning what? That the death he died upon Calvary's cross is now counted as mine. Therefore, the penalty of my sin is paid in full. The righteousness that I owe God and could never repay. Well, that righteousness of Christ is now reckoned to me, accounted to me. And God, what does he do? He, what did he do? He justified me. And now the process of sanctification on working. Some days better than others. And what am I waiting for? Glorification. But in the text, it is in the past tense. Why? Because God has decreed it. And his decrees do not change. Because God does not change. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Predestination is effected, realized in those three key acts. Calling, justifying, and glorifying. Here's the eighth assertion. Pause. Think on that one carefully. The effects of predestination cannot be its cause. The effects, and so the consequences, the results of predestination cannot also be its cause. That doesn't make it, that just can't be, can it? So something that flows from predestination follows it in time cannot also swinging back be its cause. Because if it was cause, then it wouldn't be its effect. You with me? This is made clear, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Big stumbling block. Here it is. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit. That's the new birth, the effectual call, the special call. And belief in the truth. What comes first? God chose you. As the first fruits to be saved. How are we saved? Yes, through the work of the Spirit and through what? Belief in the truth. In other words, faith is the result, the effect of what? God's election, God's predestination. And yet, what do so many people do today? They take faith and they put it back in front and they try to make it the cause of predestination. That which is the fruit, the effect of predestination, cannot be its cause. Oh, understand this, please. All good in us, including faith, is the fruit of predestination. 
if it were the cause, we wouldn't be talking about predestination. We would be speaking of post-destination. It is predestination. It is the decree of God from which this fruit flows. The effects cannot be its cause. The ninth assertion, here it is, predestination does not prevent anyone from being saved. It does not prevent anyone from being saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel 18, 23. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of of the wicked. Please hear this. Please hear this. God is not the cause of anyone's destruction. He is not the cause of anyone's destruction. He decrees all things. In how many ways? Two ways. All that is good, he has decreed to perform it. That is predestination, salvation. All that is evil, he has decreed to what? Willingly permit it. God is not the reason anyone is lost. God is not the reason anyone is damned. God is not the reason anyone doesn't get saved or become a Christian. The reason people don't get saved is this, their free will. Your free will is your problem. My free will was my problem. Because the Bible makes it clear that our free will was in bondage to sin. A slave of sin. Whereby I didn't have any right thoughts about God. I certainly didn't have any right feelings or emotions about God. But scripture makes it clear that all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. No one seeks for God. No one understands. No one does any good. And if left to our free will, we will never in a million years choose God. Why? Because we always choose in accordance with what our minds think best and our hearts want most. Guess what? We never think God is best. And we never want God most. Therefore, we go on our merry way in rebellion against God of our own free will. If anyone is lost, it is of their own choosing. Free will. And it is the direct result and consequence of their sin and rebellion against God. The tenth assertion is this. Predestination. Does not make God unjust. Well, he decrees all things and he's decreed, he's decreed, you know, to predestine some to salvation. And then he performs that in time by calling them and justifying them and glorifying them. But in the case of others, he hasn't predestined that. He just, he just leaves them and and he just lets them do whatever they want according to their free will. And, And that ends up in condemnation. It ends up in punishment. Well, you know, from my vantage point, that makes God awfully unjust. That just doesn't seem fair. Well, a helpful text is there in Romans 3.19. Every mouth, every mouth is stopped. The whole world is held accountable to God. 
And there in Romans 3, you go back and read the text. You start back in verse 9, verse 10, and you read that list of sins that Paul mentions there as he describes the condition of every human being, young and old, male and female, who has ever lived. And then he brings it to this fitting conclusion. Look, given who we are, our sinfulness and our self-love and our willful rejection of God, this is the reality. Our mouths should be closed. We are all accountable to God. Do you know what that means? When we talk about fair and just, do you understand what that means? It means this. God does not owe anyone anything. Right? This, 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 was a, this, was, uh, this was difficult for me years ago. I won't pretend, still is at times. Very difficult for me years ago until someone challenged me with this thought. Explain the angels. Explain the angels. Some of the angels rebelled, right? Followed Lucifer. Some of them preserved, were preserved, maintained. Paul describes them in 1 Timothy as elect angels. So obviously God gave them the power, the grace of preservation, whereby they remained firm. These other angels became demons. They followed Lucifer. Here's the question that struck me as I engaged in this, this conversation with my friend. Did God make any provision for their salvation? The angels. Did God make any provision for their salvation, the fallen angels? No. Right? They're lost. Entirely lost. Was that fair? Well, yes. They rebelled. Okay? Now apply it to us. Every human being has rebelled, has sinned. If God had chosen not to make any allowance for salvation, if God had chosen, decided to save no one and punish everyone, would that have been fair? Yes. If God, however, in his infinite wisdom, and for his own pleasure and purposes, decreed that he would call out of that mass of humanity a people for himself and redeem them. How is that unfair? Something is only unfair when people get what they don't deserve. In this situation, nobody gets anything they don't deserve. Except those who are saved. Grace. How does that make God unfair? Now, I know there's a question here. And here's where we come up against mystery. It does seem to make God arbitrary. We sang it earlier. Did you just mouth the words? You take them to heart, right? My God, I did not choose thee, right? Where would I be if he hadn't chosen me? Why did he choose me? I do not know. This is mystery. There's this tension here. I know there is tension. Here we enter into the realm of mystery. Embrace it. Because if you don't embrace it and try to resolve it, I promise you, you may not end up with heresy, but you'll certainly end up with skewed, unbalanced theology. Don't try to resolve what the Bible has not resolved. We have entered into the secret, secret counsels of God. All we know is that God is good. God always does good. He isn't arbitrary, but it certainly seems to make him appear arbitrary. But at the very least, we can affirm this. It most certainly does not make him unjust. It most certainly does not make him unfair. Because those who are lost, God does not give to anyone anything other than what they deserve. 
The 11th assertion is this. And here's where we get pastoral. Predestination is a special cause of peace and assurance. A special cause of peace and assurance. That's one of his chief points there in verses 29 and 30. How do I know I'm saved? Well, I I believe in the Lord Jesus. And because I believe in the Lord Jesus, I can step into that golden chain. Right? Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And I know exactly where I stand in that golden chain. And I can look backwards down those links to what? He foreknew me. He loved me before the foundation of the world. And I can look ahead down those links. And where do I wind up? He's already glorified me. It hasn't happened in actuality. But it is an absolute certainty because he has decreed it. Therefore, my assurance, my security does not depend on how I felt when I woke up this morning. Doesn't depend on what kind of a night I had last night. My assurance, my security rests in almighty God. That is extremely pastoral. It's a cause of peace and assurance. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Everyone, Arminian and Calvinist says amen to that. It's gibberish apart from predestination. It's meaningless apart from predestination. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How do I have that assurance? Because his love is not contingent on my performance. His love is not contingent on my works. His love is not contingent on what I've done, what I'm doing, what I will do. He foreknew me as a sinner, even before the foundation of the world, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. That is a cause of of peace and assurance. Number 12, predestination is a special cause of comfort and patience. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. He's writing to a church, Thessalonica, in the midst of terrible affliction. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We are destined for this. Affliction. Part of God's plan for us. Adversity. Part of God's purpose for us. Affliction. Part of God's plan for us, suffering. And is that not the broader context where we find ourselves in Romans 8? He introduced the subject back in verse 17. You're going to suffer. You live, I live in a fallen world. Never lose sight of the hope of glory, that a better world is coming. Never lose sight of the power of prayer. And then our text Never lose sight of the sovereignty of God, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? These five links in the golden chain of salvation. That means whatever I am going through today, joy or sorrow, prosperity, adversity, Sunny day, cloudy day, whatever I am going through, whatever I experience, whatever I encounter, everything is subservient to God's plan for me, which is what? That he will conform me to the image of his son. Why? So that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. It is a special cause 
of comfort and patience. And here's the last, number 13. Predestination is a special cause of awe and wonder. And with this, fittingly enough, I will conclude. Turn over to Romans chapter 11. And look at what Paul says as he has been touching on this subject through chapters 9, 10, and 11. In verse 29, he throws out an important statement. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He still has verses 29 and 30 back in chapter 8 in view. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And where does it lead him? It leads him to worship. Awe and wonder, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Our great God in glory above. We do this day ascribe all glory, honor, praise, power, and strength to you alone. We acknowledge that there is no other God besides you. More than that, we acknowledge that there is nothing in heaven above nor on earth below that is comparable to you. And so we bow down. We prostrate our minds, we prostrate our hearts, and we worship you alone. Oh, Father, give us understanding in regards to what you have made known. Incline our hearts to it and help us to glory in these wonderful truths this day, celebrating your grace, your sovereign grace. And we ask this for the edification of your people. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.